This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Kia ora you are listening to Manawatu People's Radio and the programme today is Calling uh, All Workers, the weekly radio show from Unions Manawatu. I'm John Shannon, you can contact us on Facebook at Union Central or by email at rebelshot at connect.co.nz. Calling All Workers, the purpose of the show is to raise the profile of unions advertise union events, present stories and issues of interest to workers and to build community support for union campaigns and activities. Today's uh, programme has a lot of music uh, and the intent uh, is to raise your lockdown spirits. Uh, Remember, music is the path to expand your imagination Whereas vaccination is the path to saving your life and the life of others. So vaccinate and be kind. The artist we're sort of featuring today is Pete Seeger. He lived from 1919 to 2014, a folk singer and an activist born in in New York. Uh, He played um, a five-string banjo, world famous at that. He wrote uh, the. He rewrote the song "We Shall Overcome," which became the anthem of the American Civil Rights Campaign. Other famous songs were "Where Have All the Flowers Gone?" If I Had a Hammer, "Kisses Sweeter Than Wine," "Turn Turn Turn." He sang with all the greats of American protest singers of the mid twentieth century: Bob Dylan, Joan Baez. Woody Guthrie, Paul Robeson. Um, One song, Waist Deep in the Big Muddy, which we'll hear, is about the US Army captain who drowned leading troops on a training exercise during World War II. Um, It was Seeger's song that seemed to encapsulate the anti-Vietnam War struggle. The line, We are waist deep in the big muddy and the big fools said to push on was meant to describe President Johnson as the big fool leading America into the quagmire of Southeast Asia. Uh, He was, uh, for a time, uh, a member of the Communist Party, and in the late 50s, early 60s, at the height of the folk music craze, he was blacklisted in the McCarthy area hysteria, along with the other members of uh, the Weavers group. He was a lifelong passionate supporter of organised labour, of unions, and sang at many protests and rallies. He was also a vigorous opponent of racism and an early convert to the environmental protection movement. When asked if he thought music could change the world, he replied, no, but it could make a difference. So the first uh, track we have today is called the, is, is the Waste Deep in the Big Muddy. Mm-hmm. 
We were on maneuvers in Louisiana one night by the light of the moon. The captain told us to ford a river, that's how it all begun. We were knee deep in the big muddy, but the big fool said to push on. Sergeant said, sir, are you sure this is the best way back to the base? Sergeant, go on, I forded this river about a mile above this place. It'll be a little slogging, but just keep slogging, we'll soon be on dry ground. We were way steep in the big muddy, and the big fool said to push on. Said, sir, with all this equipment, no man will be able to swim. Sergeant, don't be a nervous Nelly, the captain said to him. All we need's a little determination, men follow me, I lead on. We were neck deep in the big muddy, and the big fool said to push on. Seconds later, the captain's helmet was all that floated by. The sergeant said, Turn around, men, I'm in charge from now on. And we had just made it out of the big muddy with the captain dead and gone. We stripped and dived, found his body stuck in the old quicksand. I guess he didn't know that the water was deeper than the place he'd once before been. Another stream had joined the big muddy about a half mile from where we'd gone. We were lucky to escape from the big muddy when the big fool said, Push on! Well, I'm not gonna point any moral, I'll leave that for yourself. Maybe you're still walking, you're still talking, you'd like to keep your health. But every time I read the papers, that old feeling comes on. The second uh, song we have from uh, Pete Seeger is Garbage, a song focused on pollution and environmental protection. Mr. Thompson calls the waiter, orders steak and baked potato, but he leaves the bone and gristle and he never eats the skins. The busboy comes and takes it, with a cough contaminates it. He puts it in a can with coffee grounds and sardine tins. And the truck comes by on Friday and carts it all away. Thousand trucks just like it are converging on the bay. Oh, garbage. Garbage. Filling up the seas with garbage. What will we do when there's no place left to put all the garbage? Garbage. Mr. Thompson starts his Cadillac and winds it down the freeway track, leaving friends and neighbors in a hydrocarbon haze. He's 
Joined by lots of smaller cars All sending gases to the stars There they form a seething cloud That hangs for 30 days And the sun looks down into it With an ultraviolet tongue Turns it into smog And then it settles in our lungs Oh, garbage 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 We're filling up the sky with garbage What will we do when there's nothing left to breathe but garbage? Garbage. Getting home and taking off his shoes, he settles with the evening news while the kids do homework with the TV in one ear. While Superman for the thousandth time sells talking dolls and conquers crime, dutifully they learn the date of the birth of Paul Revere. In the papers there's a piece about the mayor's middle name. He gets it read in time to watch the all-star bingo game. Oh, garbage. Garbage. The second pieces of music come from the Weavers group which uh, Pete Seeger was a, was a part. The first of these tracks is If I Had a Hammer. If I had a hammer I'd hammer in the morning I'd hammer in the evening All over this land I'd hammer out danger, I'd hammer out a warning, I'd hammer out love between all of my brothers all over this land. If I had a bell, I'd ring it in the morning, I'd ring it in the evening. The second track from the Weavers album is Study War No More. I'm gonna lay down my sword and shield down by the river side and study, study war no more. 
gonna walk with the Prince of Peace. Down by the riverside, I'm gonna walk with the Prince of Peace. Hallelujah. Down by the riverside, I'm gonna walk with the Prince of Peace. And I'll study, study. I would like to now bring to your attention an article that was in uh, the recent Le Monde Diplomatique um, and it relates to the proposal about uh, putting a tax on multinationals universally, so not within each nation state but set by world governments across the world a tax at 15%. In 2017, Google channeled $23 billion of income to its accounts in Bermuda alone via various tax havens. In France that year, the company's corporate income tax bill was just $14.1 million. Officially, its 700 executives in France made no sales there, but only assisted Google's Irish subsidiary, its EU headquarters are in Dublin, which kept the accounts on this European tax haven. Meanwhile, online retail giant Amazon avoids federal corporate income tax in the US year after year and declares losses in Europe, even though its profits have soared during the pandemic. Investigative journalists at ProPublica confirmed that this spring that famous billionaires such as Jeff Bezos Michael Bloomberg, Warren Buffett, Carl Icahn, Elon Musk and George Soros have used every legal loophole available to pay little or no personal income tax in the US. Only the multinational's closest ally, the US, seems able to stand up to them on taxation and foreign investment. And only President Biden's plea to his G7 partners for a universal 15% tax on multinationals' consolidated income, the combined income of all these subsidiaries, got his fellow leaders, usually slow to react, to fall into line, a far cry from the vacuous claim by then-French President Nicolas Sarkozy in uh, 2000 and at the 2009 G20 
that tax havens and banking secrecy are a thing of the past. The proposed rate of 15% for this new universal tax is low, even derisory. It's barely as much as the tip restaurant customers usually leave in the US. However, it does illustrate an enduring paradox. The US president is often more powerful on the global stage than at home. While Biden got foreign leaders to accept his proposal without resistance, he couldn't convince congressional Republicans to raise the US corporate tax rate to 21%. He initially aimed for 28%. And even that was a modest ambition. It was 35% when Donald Trump took office in January 2017. In recent years, all major OECD countries have reduced their corporate tax rates, seeking to emulate tax havens rather than tackle them. In Germany, Canada, France and Scandinavia, the official rate was brought down well below 30% during the 2010s. The multinationals have stepped up their schemes to reduce it still further. Economist Thomas Piketty rightly argues that introducing such a low rate sanctioned by states themselves appears to enshrine multinationals' privileged tax status. By establishing that multinationals can continue to freely locate their profits in tax havens without being taxed above 15%, he wrote in Le Monde on the 12th of June, the G7 is formalising a world in which oligarchs structurally pay less tax than the rest of the population. And the countries of the South will see no benefit from this arrangement. They will still derive little income from the international tax system since their trade is largely in raw materials which generate small profits and little tax revenue. Even so, from a legal rather than a revenue perspective, Biden's proposal is a step forward. It gives multinationals the status of legal subjects. Previously, jurisdictions only treated their subsidiaries individually and independently as legal entities. Multinationals, since they first appeared 100 years ago, have abused this trend towards legal fragmentation. They have used transfer pricing and trademark licensing arrangements, deploying accounting sleight of hand to shift profits where they will be taxed least and employing shell structures in tax havens to accumulate income not declared elsewhere. In 2012, Starbucks representatives told British politicians they had made no profit in the UK because of the royalties on intellectual property they had to pay to other entities within the same group, located in tax havens, which held a host of patents and usage rights. These costs were deducted from income, enabling the business to declare a loss and avoid taxation. Technically, the G7 decision partly short-circuits the role of tax havens, as multinationals will now be taxed on all their profits, irrespective of which subsidiary holds the funds and where it is. Even if a large agribusiness, IT or energy company allocates its intellectual property rights or certain income to entities in Bermuda, Ireland or Luxembourg, they will still be subject to this tax. The big challenge now becomes raising the rate. Biden's approach demonstrates that international taxation is a political matter, even if others have tried to reduce it to mere accounting. 
Pascal Saint-Amand, director of the OECD's Centre for Tax Policy and Administration, may now be boasting he was the architect of these agreements, yet for years he took a diametrically opposed position, claiming the issue required technical, mathematical solution and it would require a Herculean effort to harmonise 200 countries' tax regimes. In interviews, he also insisted that harmonising corporate tax rate globally would run counter to the principle of state sovereignty. With one declaration, the US has swept aside this argument. It is not technical advances in international accounting that drive policy, but policies that force changes in accounting practice. Tax havens are a political and diplomatic issue too. States create them by passing legislation that neutralises laws based uh, sorry, laws passed in other jurisdictions in the states where big businesses and wealthy individuals actually operate. Governments interfere in the affairs of other states. A Bahamian parliament has created a category of exempted companies which do not have to pay income tax or disclose their directors' identities provided they don't do business in the Bahamas. This means they can only register capital earned abroad. Effectively, the Bahamas is legislating for how capital will be handled and taxed everywhere except in the Bahamas. When EU Competition Commissioner Margaret Vestager, going counter to the EU's direction of travel, tried in 2016 to end the selective tax breaks Ireland gives to tech giant Apple, she defined Ireland's role as a tax haven in a way that could also be applied to other tax havens. She argued that by setting the corporate tax rate for companies that operated across Europe, not just domestically, Ireland was abusing its legislative power and interfering in other states' affairs. The Commission's 2016 decision imposing a recovery order on Apple for £13 billion in unpaid taxes was ultimately overturned in 2020 by the General Court of the European Union. Nevertheless, it helped define offshore legislation and opened the door to the measures Biden is now promoting. Rather than lead an international campaign against all those countries that, like Ireland, abuse their power, the US convinced the G7 to adopt a principle that renders their tax breaks inoperative, recognising multinationals as legal subjects in their own right. It remains hard to predict the effectiveness of these measures, but two criteria will give some indication of whether they are working. The first indicator is foreign direct investment. If intragroup pseudo-transactions, which artificially make the Cayman Islands, Luxembourg or Delaware major international financial centres, do not decrease, that will indicate companies are still finding ways to conceal assets and tax havens. The second is that companies should logically pay more tax in the states where they operate. Currently, corporate tax only accounts for about 5% of the tax base in France or Germany, and these figures include tax paid by small and medium enterprises, which have few tax avoidance options. By comparison, taxes on consumption and personal income contribute 60 to 65%. It's worth remembering that tax is just one aspect of the much wider problem of lax jurisdictions. These make it possible to circumvent not just the tax laws of the states in which the companies operate, but laws of all sorts. Free trade zones and free ports escape the control of labour legislation. 
while other regulatory havens such as the Cayman Islands were stock market speculation, the Marshall Islands for oil exploration and Canada for mining, shield groups with entities registered there from environmental and human rights laws. As far as human rights are concerned, multinationals are known for their skill in securing acquittals when one of their subsidiaries around the world is involved in a scandal. Too often a judge fails to condemn a parent company for what uh, one of its legally independent subsidiaries has done abroad. In 2013, a court in The Hague failed to condemn Shell's parent company, which has its headquarters in the Netherlands, for causing serious environmental damage in Nigeria. All blame fell on the subsidiary. Worryingly, the US seems to be the only country capable of enabling or perhaps one day ending this type of tax measure. The EU has failed to stop the offshore phenomenon amongst its own members and has shaped Europe according to the logic of globalisation, allowing Romania to develop its free zones, Malta its free port, Ireland and the Netherlands to become regulatory havens and Luxembourg a supermarket for lax legislation. So that was written by Alain Delant um, and it was in the July issue of Le Monde Diplomatique. Uh, So I would like to just uh, sign off this um, session of Calling All Workers by quoting a commentator, David Runciman, who I think gives an interesting summation of where the world is at in an economic, financial sense, where he says the direction of travel over the last 40 years has has been in the neoliberals' favour towards deregulation, market competition, globalisation and winner-take-all economics. Now, though the future may be open to lasting change, we may have reached a turning point towards the accession of greater government control over economic outcomes. Inequality is the focus of political debate around the world. Uh, Thank you, Pano. See you next time. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.